Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this week's lesson from the Israelites' journey in the wilderness, we will observe one of the greatest failures of God's people as they send spies into the promised land and respond unfaithfully to the report that the spies bring back. So open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13 and join us as we continue to learn how the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus Christ. The really overview of our journey and the theme of why we're here is that the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus Christ. And we have been looking at this study of the lessons from here to there, looking at the Israelites' journeys in the wilderness and looking how they they left the land of slavery in Egypt and they are in the process of being prepared to enter the land of promise in Canaan. And we get to a very important chapter today, and I think it's actually an important one to end our year on, at least our calendar year on, before we look ahead to January. But uh, it is from Numbers chapters 13 and 14, and the title of the message this morning is Spies Like Us. And I, I thought of that title because back in 1985, so that's 36 years ago this week, a movie premiered starring Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase that maybe some of you saw is entitled Spies Like Us. And I want us to maybe ask that question as we read this passage today. Which of the spies am I more like? And that will make sense as we get to the, the text. But in this particular movie, which I can't recommend, I, I saw it when I was young, and it's you know, like a lot of those movies, I, I would go back and maybe say, can I show this to my kids? No, I can't, but... Um, <laughs> But from what I remember from the movie, you have these two knuckleheads who work for the government. They want more exciting government jobs. So they go and they, they get approved to join the CIA to become spies. And they're, they're, they're idiots. And the CIA sends them intentionally into Afghanistan and other parts of Russia because the Cold War is still looming. And they're using them as dummies to really find out what the Russians are up to. They, and they, they figure it out. They're like, oh, we've been had. They've been using us. But anyway, apparently it's got some funny part, parts. I... But I can't recommend it. I'll just say that's where I got the movie title. Um, And uh, so we think about what spies are we like? And we'll find out that there are really two groups of spies, the ten and the two. So as we think about where we are, and Dennis and Carl, we we love maps here at the the Friday Men's Breakfast, so we try to include maps in every lesson. And, And this map becomes very helpful and instructive for us because you see the lower circle is Kadesh Barnea, and that's Kadesh, or Kadesh is where the Israelites are camping, and you see that there's a circle that is north of that, the Valley of Eshkol, and a place called Hebron, or Hebron, and that's a very important location that's going to get mentioned, and we'll talk about why that is. And uh, this is, the, the heart of the land is where these spies are going to go into. Now, I had this thought this morning and you know, Dale is one of my co-pastors. He'll have to maybe rebuke and edify me later. And maybe these are, these are conversations that we can have afterwards offline. But up until this point, I've been thinking they're going to be entering the land. They're going to be entering the land. They're going to be entering the land. And the spies are sent up into the land. But I realized as I thought about it, guys, I think they have actually been in the land the whole time after they left Egypt. Because if you read Genesis 15, when God gives Abraham a more formalized covenant and and makes that clearer to him, he talks about the boundaries of this real estate that he's promising Abraham. 
And he talks about how it's going to go from the Nile River in Egypt all the way to the Euphrates River over in Mesopotamia and that area. And if that's right, then they have actually been wandering and moving away from the land of slavery already in the land. So they've been walking and trotting in it, but they haven't yet experienced rest in the land, which is God's ultimate promise to them. Not only will they they own the territory, but they haven't experienced the rest that God wants for them to have. Now, what we get when we get into this area of Hebron, when the spies go in, is something that they haven't experienced yet in this land. And maybe that's why this is a real turning point for them, is up until now, their problems have been, we, we feel like we don't have any food, we don't have any water. Let's go back to Egypt, and we'll see that theme again today. But today, for the first time, they see enemies in the land. And how the spies respond, most of the spies respond to that, and the people respond to the spies' report, becomes the major issue that God uh, takes offense at and then ultimately judges them. So uh, I'm still developing that idea that maybe they've been in the land this whole time, but they haven't yet experienced rest, and they haven't experienced victories over the enemies who currently occupy this real estate in the ancient Middle East. Uh, Again, still processing through that, but we will learn some lessons today from what we see in the lives of the spies. And so um, this falls in uh, after Numbers chapter 10, which was a high point for the book of people really uh, dedicating themselves and worshiping the Lord and um, celebrating, uh, I think, even the Day of Atonement. And it's been a downward spiral since then. And chapters in 13, 13 and 14 are maybe the lowest point for this generation of the nation of Israel in the wilderness. So they're in this area in, uh, in Kadesh or Kadesh Barnea, and the spies are going to go north up into the land, as we will see. Our structure for this morning is breaking out these passages. We have the names of the spies, the mission of the spies, the report of the spies, the response to the spies, and the conclusions and consequences of all of this. Spies like us. Let's open, let's open our Bibles to Numbers chapter 13 as we look at the first few verses of the names of the spies. And these names are important. These were real men in real history, in a real place, and they would be given a real mission. So we read and start in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send men, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them uh, from them uh, the wilderness of Paran, according to the command, or the, the Hebrew word is also the mouth of the Lord. All of them, men who were heads of the people of Israel, and these were their names. And these uh, correspond roughly with the 12 uh, sons of Jacob who became the forefathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. So from the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. His name would be important. From the tribe of Issachar, Igal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. Again, his name will be important. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphur. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. From the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. 
By the way, these are great names to recommend if you have kids or grandkids to be born, you know, <laughs> expecting. Just pass these on to your, your children and grandchildren. This would be great for you to name your child these names. Um, verse 12, from the, uh, from the tribe of Dan, okay, there's a normal, uh, Amiel, the son of Gemali, and from the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vafshi, Vafsi, from the tribe of Gad, Guel, uh, the son of Makai. Again, it was, I was told if you just read them quickly enough, you... <laughs> They tell you in seminary, if you read these quickly enough, people think you actually know how to pronounce them. Um, but these, these, these were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And then here's the key here. Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. And Joshua would be very important and will continue to be important in the lives of the Israelites in the wilderness. Interestingly, Hosea, the name means he saves. Well, who is he? When Moses renames him to Joshua, we find out it's Yahweh, the Lord, saves. And his name is significant with the role he would eventually play. So, so these are the names of the spies. Let's move to the mission of the spies. And their mission was actually quite simple. And as we read this text, I'll try to put the terms up here which indicate what their mission was. So Moses sent them, verse 17, to spy out the land of Canaan. And he said to them, Go up into the Negeb, which is on the, in the southern part of that territory, or really the southern part of modern-day Israel. Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country, which would be the northern part of that region and that territory, and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, or whether there are trees in it or not. So they're really trying to do a survey of the land and its inhabitants. What is the land like? What is its produce like? What are the people like? Are they a warring people? Are they a peaceful people? What is the landscape like? That's really their mission so far, is to go up, go up and see what is in the land. We continue reading. Be of good courage. Remember that. Be of good courage. And finally, bring home the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. This would have been late July or early August, according to the way that the temperature and climate is in that part of the world. So remember these, go up, see what the land is, be of good courage, and bring some of the fruit of the land and bring it back. So next we continue reading in verse 21. So they, they went up, they did, there you go, check. They spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin, which is in the south, close to where they were, uh, to uh, Rehob near Labo Hamath, then, verse 22 is a real pivotal verse here. Uh, they went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. Now, Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Now, this city of Hebron is a significant one as we look at the history of what God had promised to Abraham. If you remember, if you've studied Abraham's life, he was this nomad, and God approached him by his grace and said, I'm choosing you. 
And he promised to give Abraham three covenant blessings. One was land, the other one was seed, that is descendants. And then the third is that he would be blessed and be a blessing to all nations. And over a series of chapters in Genesis, God continues to confirm to Abraham this covenant promise because Abraham has some doubts. And um, so in, G- in Genesis chapter 13, we read these words after Abraham, who, who was called Abram, tells his relative Lot, you choose what portion of this whole area you want and I'll take the rest. And Lot chooses a portion. And so after this moment, we read these words in Genesis chapter 13. The Lord said to Abram, which is another name for Abraham, after Lot separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. So this land that the Israelites are are seeking to find rest in is something that God had already promised to Abraham and to his descendants who are the Israelites in the wilderness, you will have this land as a perpetual statute forever and your offspring. And then verse 15, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, which they cannot, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So God is saying, all that you see is a covenant promised possession for you to take. It's my gift to you and your offspring. What does Abraham do? So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So we see that this location of Hebron is very significant because in this entire region that God promised Abraham, This is where he chose to take up his first claim on real estate. And he set his tent there and he built an altar and he worshiped. This is an important place. And it also becomes the place where I believe Abraham and his son um, Isaac are buried. It's a significant spot. And here the Israelites approach it in Numbers chapter 13. And they see these people who look to be large people. In fact, the text tells us in uh, well, the text tells us that they were uh, that they are tall people. As we get to, so they come to this very significant piece of real estate, and then in verse twenty-three, back in Numbers thirteen, and they came to the valley of Eshcol and cut down from there a branch of a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between the two of them, and they also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshcol, which means cluster or stalk because of the cluster that the people of the Israel cut down from there. So we go to the original mission of these, uh, these Israelites and the, these spies that go into the land, right? Go up, see what is in the land, be of good courage, and then bring some of the fruit of the land. And they bring this giant stalk and cluster of grapes. In fact, to this very day, the the symbol and the logo for the the country of Israel's ministry of tourism is two individuals carrying a cluster of grapes um, on the stalk to look back to this moment in Numbers 13 because of the significance that this moment, these spies had gone into this land that they know is theirs to claim and they took some of the fruit and they brought it back to the people in the wilderness. And so this moves then to their report 
But here's the thing, and here's the problem that we need to keep in mind as we look at these, these four commands. They did the first one, they did the second one. The problem was they failed to obey the third one, which was to be of good courage. And we'll see that come out as they give their report in these next few verses. Verse 25, at the end of 40 days, now 40 days is a significant period of time in the scriptures. It's a period of preparation. It's a season. Um, just calling out some ideas, as we think about other 40-day periods in, in the Bible, does anybody know some other well-known 40-day periods that come to mind when we think about this significant uh, time period in the Scriptures? Just call it out if you know it. Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, right? What's that? Yeah, he spent 40 days uh, appearing and then uh, between his, his resurrection and his ascension. 40 days and 40 nights, yep, with Noah and the ark, right. There was a, I put a few down here because of the significance of this. We have, we have Noah, we have Jesus in the wilderness. We also have Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. He was up there for 40 days. So this is a significant period, a thorough period. They spied out the land for 40 days, and that number 40 will become important with how responses and consequences come. So at the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. Now, that's not in the original account that we see as they went through and looked and saw the people there and took the cluster of grapes. But what this is language describes is that it is in a land of abundance. Milk was sustenance. Honey was sweet. They're saying this is a good land. It is great. It's rich. God's promise to us is a good one. It's flowing with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. All right, so that's where the good news ends. Because the next word that you see in your text, at least in my English Standard Version translation, in verse 28 is, however. And as one commentator has written, everything that they say from this word forward is uncalled for <laughs> because this is where they start to let that they fail to have good courage. And this is what they say next about this land that's rich and abundant and good. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. So here they are, finally having seen the, the, the rich heart of this great land that God has promised. And they say it's good. However, there are enemies there that we cannot ever hope to defeat. We could never conquer them. They should just take it. And this is where the bad report really starts to unwind as they look and focus on uh, the, the, the obstacles that really obscured their vision to see what God had promised and what God would do. 
So throughout their time in the wilderness, they constantly doubted God's provision and promises. And here it hits its full steam of head as they say, there is no way that God would give us this land because of these enemies. Now, God understood and had promised to Moses that he would give the land to the descendants of Abraham. When, God, when Moses encountered God at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, God had these words to say, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, which is the first place where we see this phrase used of the promised land in the scriptures in Exodus 3. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God knew that these enemies would be there. And he told Moses, I'm still going to give the land. And I'm sure Moses told the people, there will be, there will be other occupants of this land, but God is going to give it to us. Let's not fear. Let's be of good courage. And indeed, Caleb was the one who stood and, and was having good courage. And in verse 30, he offers a counter to the bad report with a reminder to the people of what God had promised. As Caleb says, uh, Caleb quieted the people in verse 30 before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Says, we are well able to do this, guys. God has said this would be our inheritance. It belongs to us. These people do not belong there, and we can find a way to move them out so that we can move in and take hold of what God has promised. We continue reading that the response to Caleb was not very good. Then the men who had gone up with him, this would be the other ten, because what we find is that Caleb and Joshua were the two faithful spies, and the other ten were the unfaithful ones. So the other unfaithful spies who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought out the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. Now, now they've gone from saying it's good, it's flowing with land and, uh, milk and honey, to it's going to eat us up if we actually try to go there because of the enemies that were there. And all the people that, uh, that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the, the Nephilim. <laughs> okay, now... This is getting into, some people say as pastors we have the gift of exaggeration. There is some high-level exaggeration going on here. To say that they saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed ourselves to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. We're, we're talking about pulling from uh, you know, this, these uh, historic and yet legendary figures from Genesis chapter 6, when the, the sons of, of God, or angelic beings, had relations with, um, with human women, and these, these, tall, um, these tall beings were born. And, um, and they're basically saying that these Nephilim are there now, and they're really just amping up the bad report so that it sounds absolutely impossible that they would ever go against these giants and conquer the land. Now, we can understand this. We can understand making all kinds of excuses and saying no for reasons because of our fears and our insecurities and our concerns. But God had promised that he would give this to his people. And no obstacle was supposed to get in the way. 
The response of the people to this bad report is where things really get challenging. And just listen to the, the ridiculousness of this as um, all that God has done in their lives, and then here's how they respond. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. They're so despondent. They're so depressed. Verse 2, they start a familiar tune that we have heard before. And all the people of Israel grumbled. There's our favorite word, not really. It should be a familiar word to us as we've looked at the Israelites' journeys in the wilderness. It's that same word, loon, grumbled. Against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, would that, this is going to sound familiar, would that we had, had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. What? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? Because he promised it to your forefathers and it's good to fall by the sword. Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? That's a dumb question, to the land of slavery. And they said to one another, this is where it gets ridiculous, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. <laughs> and they wanted to, uh, you know, to impeach the president and get a new leadership and let's go back to Egypt. Guys, they're like, they're right there. Probably in the land, but certainly on the cusp of, of conquering the, the heart of the land. And they say, we want to go all the way back to Egypt, to where we were slaves. Finally, Moses and Aaron, we find in these verses, they intercede. They, they fall down on their faces. And, um, and Joshua, and we read in verse 6, uh, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh were among those who had spied out the land, and they tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is, is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Now this word delights is the Hebrew word chafetz. And because I don't want to sound so silly by myself, I want you guys to say it with me. Chafetz. Say it. Chafetz. You got to clear the, clear the, yeah, that's right. Clear the phlegm out a little bit. Um, it's a word that means delight or desire. It is a word that in uh, the famous servant psalm in Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the delight of God to crush his servant. Ultimately, that is his servant, Jesus Christ. We also see in Hosea 6.6, 6, for I delight or I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This was a word where uh, God delighted in seeing his purposes fulfilled, and he delighted in seeing his people respond faithfully to his promises. Caleb knew that the, the people were in jeopardy of, of losing some of the delightful standing that they had before God. They would still always be God's people, uh, but God would not be delighting in their response. And so his words in chapter 14, verse 9, become very instructive for us as we read them. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. He's saying, the land's not going to devour us. We can devour those people because God will give them and the land into our hands. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Those will be very instructive words for us that we'll return to in just a few minutes. Now, what is the response of the Israelite community? 
to uh, God's servant, Caleb, standing forward and proclaiming God's truth? Well, their response is very similar to other servants that have stood to proclaim God's truth, like Stephen, the very first martyr in Acts chapter 7, and the apostle Paul when he would go and preach the gospel. We read in verse 10, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting and all to all the people of Israel. They sought to stone them. They were so afraid they didn't want to because of their fears and the obstacles they thought about. They sought to stone faithful servants of God. And what happens is that God intercedes. His glory shows up and he says, I want to wipe out this, this nation. Much like he said after the golden calf incident in, in um, Exodus chapter 32. And Moses once again intercedes for the people and says, no, Lord, please do not. And God says, I will not wipe them out. I have heard your plea for pardon, but there must be consequences for this behavior. We read in verse 20 of chapter 14. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, Moses. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. So God has said, this is the straw that's broken the camel's back, gang. There are ten times throughout the scriptures of this account of the Israelites in the wilderness, that God says, you have, you have doubted me, you have not trusted me, you have rebelled against me, you have grumbled against me. And um, just for the, the sake of time, I'll just list them out quickly here, but the, the Red Sea in Exodus 14, Marah in Exodus 15, where they said we have no water, the wilderness of sin, when they grumbled uh, for the lack of, lack of water. Um, then we also have uh, when God finally provided the manna, in, in Exodus chapter 16, and they left the manna until morning, which they were not supposed to, and it was rotten. Next, we have at Rephidim, they grumbled again for the lack of water. We have at Horeb or Sinai, the golden calf incident, where they created an idol to a false god. Then we have Taberah, where they complained about their troubles. We have Kibroth Hata'ava, where they craved meat, and were grumbling about that. And then finally here at Kadesh, grumbling about the report the spies brought to the land. And God says, this is it. I'm up to here. And there are going to be consequences for this behavior. And what we find out is it's interesting. There were 10 plagues in Egypt where God provided deliverance miraculously. Now after the 10th time of rebellion and distrust, God says, this, here's the consequence. I'll summarize it. Everyone in the generation that's older than 20 years, in this whole community of maybe up to 2 million people, not one of you except Joshua and Caleb are going to enter the promised land. In fact, one year for every day that the spies spied out the land, which was 40 days, will be the period of time that this whole company is going to be spending in the wilderness. So the first generation, which was the faithless generation, was going to die but the remaining generation would still suffer in the wilderness for 40 years because of the disbelief and the distrust in God's promise and the response to the report that the spies brought back. And what's amazing to me 
is uh, what we read in verse 25 of verse 14, uh, chapter 14. Now, since the Amalekites, God says, and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. What is God doing? He's saying, you want to go back towards Egypt? For 40 years, you're going to go back towards Egypt. Guys, they were right there. They saw the heart of the land. And now God says, about face, for 40 years, you're going back. And that's really where uh, you know, the remainder of their time is before they would then return again after the first generation would die. And God would talk to the new generation about being the people who are finally prepared to take and conquer the land that he had promised. So, as we think about this passage, and we think about even this time of, of, of Christmas season as we are here, it, it can seem kind of depressing. It might not seem like a, a passage where there are tiding, glad tidings of, of great joy and so forth. But as we think about the applications and what we can learn, I think the words of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, are very instructive. Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear. The Lord is with us. As we think about that first one, do not rebel against the Lord, I would say is really, as we look at it now, an invitation to uh, faith, an invitation to salvation. Of Do not rebel against the Lord. And the reason why I say that is because in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, we read, as the author of Hebrews is writing about this very account from Numbers chapter 13 and 14, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who, uh, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? That is the promised land. But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So we find out in this case that unbelief, failing to believe God and in his promises, is the same as disobedience. And as the author of Hebrews unpacks this, there are different ways to interpret the very complex book of Hebrews. But the position that I take is that the author of Hebrews is saying, there are some who are in this midst who do not yet know Jesus Christ. Make sure that you don't fail, like the Israelites in the wilderness, to enter into his rest, into his salvation, into the greatest promised land that God has to offer through his son, Jesus Christ. So I would say to, to anyone here, it's not meant to get anyone to doubt their salvation, but maybe there's someone here who has not yet taken that step of placing their faith in Jesus Christ, of uh, continuing to rebel and reject against God and his ways and his truth. And I would say, as the author of Hebrews would write, if you hear his voice today, don't harden your hearts. Trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins. And the promise there is that you will enter into his rest, his great eternal promised land rest that we get to look forward to ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, as we think about the next point of application, 
which I believe would really apply to those of us, this gracious invitation of God that we have received. We, we will experience rest through Christ, for, through salvation. I think the next word of application applies to us. Do not fear, the Lord is with us. I think this is an invitation to peace, that God is inviting all who trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, to experience, because God is with us, right? Whatever we're going through, whatever uncertainty or unknown, we can have peace and not fear because God is with us. Whatever difficult decision or obedient step that we need to take, that we're hesitant to take, we can take it and be of good courage because God is with us. As we prepare for this Christmas season, I'm reminded, as we all should be, of the great beauty of God with us, and I'm reminded of another man much like us, a regular guy, who had, kind of like the Israelite spies, he, he, he was shown something, and he was given a ridiculously challenging task in life. His name is Joseph. And Joseph was visited by an angel, probably Gabriel, who told him some words, and some words that are familiar to our text today from Numbers chapter 13, or Numbers 14. Because Joseph had a, a, a fiancé, and she was pregnant, <laughs> and, uh, and he was wondering what to do about this. And so he, he wanted to treat her with respect, and he was considering a quiet divorce. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Familiar words that we've read, right? Words that are repeated up to 365 times, one statement for every day of the year. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Then Matthew continues writing, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, that is the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, which is amazing. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So that brings us to that point. Do not fear. God is with us. The, the whole story of Christmas demonstrates that God is intimately and intricately involved in the lives of his people. The Israelite spies and the Israelite congregation should have remembered that, and they had evidence of that. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, guys, we have abundant evidence of that, that God would see us in our state where we were incapable of entering the promised land on our own because of our own sin and rebellion. And so God enters into time and in history through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, the newborn king who is the king of kings, who would become the crucified king and the resurrected king and ascended king who will one day return as the victorious king. And he invites us to a relationship and a gift so that we might experience the greatest rest in the greatest promised land of all. And through that, even though we look ultimately to the future, we can have his peace and be of good courage and not fear in the present because God is with us today. As we think about our conclusion, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear. God is with us. The words of God rest ye merry gentlemen are appropriate as we think about these truths. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. 
Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. O tidings of comfort and joy. Thank you for joining us for the Friday Men's Breakfast podcast. For more information about the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash mensbreakfast. We will be taking a break for the Christmas holiday, but I hope you will join us again on January 7th when we will continue our study of the Israelites' journey in the wilderness in the new year. Merry Christmas and God bless.